Good morning, everyone. Thanks for letting me get to speak to you this morning. I always count it. Just an incredible privilege. So grateful. Uh, If you have your Bible or your Bible app, whichever you use, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you. But before we dive into this passage, I want to read a story to you that I think illustrates what we're going to be learning from God's Word this morning. And I I can only assume this happened a number of years ago because a number of these people have died. But a well-known professional golfer was playing in a tournament with, at the time, President Gerald Ford, Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham, the famed Reverend Billy Graham. And after the round was over, so there's four people playing golf together. After the round was over, one of the other pros on the tour asked the golfer, Hey, what was it like playing golf with the president and with Billy Graham? And the professional golfer said with disgust, he said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And then with that, he headed off toward the practice tee. And his friend followed after and After the golfer had pounded out his anger and his fury on a bucket of golf balls, the the other golfer asked him, he said, hey, was was Billy a little rough on you out there today? Kind of implying, like, was Billy trying to get at you with this religion stuff? And the professional golfer sighed with embarrassment, and he said, no, Billy didn't even mention religion once. And this passage illustrates what we're going to be reading this morning, and it illustrates this reality that when we live holy lives, like Billy Graham lived, when we live holy lives, the world sees and they can't ignore it. When we live holy, holy lives, the world sees and they can't ignore it. So with that in mind, with that reality in mind, would you mind standing with me if you're able and we're going to read God's word together. Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen. This is Jesus after he has delivered the Beatitudes. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, I pray that this morning through your word you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would do all the good things you want to do through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So for the past number of weeks, we have been in the Beatitudes, and we've been learning together what it means to be a flourishing Christian, to be a true flourishing Christian, that we're called to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're called to be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. All these things, they are part of the holy life that God has called us to. And they're what it means to live as part of God's kingdom. When we live this way, this is what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom 
of God. And it's radically different, isn't it? Radically different from the way the world lives. Not just sort of different, but when we live according to these commands from Jesus, we are living radically different lives. And in the passage we're in this morning, Jesus transitions from directing us inward to how we're living and how we're thinking about the way we're living. He transitions from directing us inward to directing us outward toward the rest of the world. And he tells us that we're called to live in such a way that it influences the world around us. That our lives are to have a direct, specific effect on the world around us. In other words, we're not to be isolated hermit Christians who go out in the desert and just pursue me and Jesus Christianity. We're not supposed to hide from society. Rather, we're to live out the Beatitudes and all of Scripture in the midst of the world. And we're to show the watching world what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and a citizen of the kingdom of God. And when we do this, when we live like this, it has a real dramatic effect on the world. And the main point of the passage this morning, it's really simple. It's not complicated, which I'm grateful for because I'm not a complicated guy. The point of the passage this morning is simply this. It's that Christians are called to be salt and light in the world. That's the point. Christians are called to be salt and light in the world. And we're called to live in such a way that it's as if we're salt and as if we're light. And Jesus breaks down each of these for us individually. So the first point is that Christians are called to be salt in the world. Look down at verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. As I was studying this passage and wrestling with it, I was wrestling with the question, what does Jesus mean when he says we are the salt of the earth? And I was reading a bunch of commentaries and, man, with the commentaries, they go all over the place and they talk about how salt was used for preserving food and used as fertilizer and how it was used to buy things. In one commentary, the guy said he had found 11 different ways that Jesus could have meant something about salt here. And I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think Jesus has anything particularly complex in mind because look at what he says. He says, if salt has lost its what? Taste. And so when Jesus refers to salt and refers to us as the salt of the earth, I'm pretty sure he's referring to using salt to flavor food. Because he says if salt has lost its taste, it's useless. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying that just as salt is used to flavor food, so in the same way Christians are to spread a certain flavor throughout the world. We're called to spread flavor, just like salt is used to flavor food. We're called to spread a certain flavor throughout the world. And when unbelievers are around us, they should detect the flavor of Christ in us. When unbelievers are around us, they should detect Christ in us. In us, When they see how we live and how we speak and how we love others and how we serve others, they should come away from that saying, I, I detect something different about them. There's a flavor in them that I don't get with most people. There's something distinctly different about them. 
Have you ever eaten a meal that has a really unique flavor? I know some of you love to cook. You love to experiment with flavors. You love to create new creative dishes. Have you ever had a meal that just has a really unique, distinct flavor to it? Maybe it's curry or garlic or cilantro or whatever it is. As you're eating it, you're like, what, what is this flavor? It's so distinct. It's so unique. I, I, I like it. And in the same way, food that hasn't been seasoned, it's pretty bland and boring, isn't it? I mean, chicken that hasn't been marinated or at least seasoned in some way, there's nothing compelling about a boring, plain old piece of chicken. Nothing about it that makes you say, man, I want more of that. And Jesus is saying, if you obey my commands, if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn your sin and are merciful toward others and work hard to be a peacemaker, the world will notice. Just like you notice a uniquely flavored meal, the world will notice. You'll be like salt spreading the flavor of the kingdom of God wherever you go. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2.15. Such a visual picture. I love this picture. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When we live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, there's a distinct Christ-like aroma to us. And think about this with me for a second because this is really profound. There should be such a distinctness about us from the rest of the world that when people are around us, they almost get the sense that they are around Jesus. They catch the aroma of Christ when they're around us, and it gets their attention. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my mother-in-law and how she uses this really distinct laundry detergent that has this very strong smell. That's the only way I know how to describe it. And when I'm at her house or you know, we're on vacation with them. Inevitably, some of my clothes end up getting washed in that laundry detergent. And the second I put on a piece of that clothing, I catch the aroma and I know that it's been washed in that detergent. There's an incredibly unique aroma about it. And we're called to live in such a holy manner that people catch the aroma of Jesus himself when they're around us. We should be so different from the world, so unique that people will feel like they're close enough to Jesus almost to catch his smell. Does that make sense? And let me be the first to say, as I was preparing this week and as I've thought about this a lot, I've failed to do this so many times. I've failed to live out the Beatitudes. I've sinned. I've failed to be merciful and a peacemaker and pure in heart. And it's why I'm so grateful that I have a Savior. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul was talking about in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And he talked about how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that and how he is our Savior and the one who has perfectly fulfilled all these things. I'm so grateful I have a Savior, aren't you? As we ponder these things, God looks on me as if I've obeyed because Christ obeyed in my place. But with that being said, Jesus does present us with a really sober warning. Look at verse 13 again. Jesus warns us that we can lose our saltiness. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Back in Jesus' day, salt 
was often harvested from the sea. And when they would harvest salt from the sea, there would often be a lot of other compounds mixed in with that salt. So in other words, it wasn't pure salt. It was salt mixed with other things. And what could actually happen is that over time, the salt could dissolve, leaving behind just these tasteless compounds. And so the salt would no longer have any salty flavor, and it would be useless. Because, I mean, honestly, what good is salt that's not salty, right? Might as well be pouring baking soda on your steak or something like that. It's pointless. It's useless. And so Jesus warns us against losing our saltiness. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it seems like he's saying there's a real sense in which we, if we're not careful, can lose our Christ-like saltiness. Now, how does that happen? I don't think it's complicated. It happens when we live like the world when we give in to our sin, when we're lax in our pursuit of holiness, when we neglect to pursue the ways of God, when we fail to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, when we neglect the Beatitudes and all the other commands of God, we're in danger. We really are in serious danger of losing saltiness. You could even say it like this, that when that happens, our witness for Christ gets diluted by the impurities of the world. And that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to lose your saltiness. Jesus said, how shall its saltiness be restored? I don't think that Jesus means it's impossible to repent. Or that if we lose our saltiness, it's impossible for us to return to it. But I do think he means that the more we live like the world, the harder it is to get back to living as citizens of the kingdom of God. The more we choose the same things the world chooses, the harder it is to choose the way of Christ. The duller our consciences become, the harder it is to get back our distinctiveness as Christians. And when that happens, our saltiness is gone. And Jesus says, he even uses the word useless. In a sense, we become useless. I don't think that means that God doesn't love us anymore, but it does mean that we're no longer spreading the flavor of the kingdom of God wherever we go. We're no longer spreading the aroma of Christ. We're no longer proclaiming the kingdom of God through our good deeds. We're Christians with no flavor. This is challenging to me. I don't want to be a useless, flavorless Christian. I don't want to lose my saltiness for Jesus. And so as I've been working on my sermon, on this sermon this week, my prayer again and again, I've been saying, Lord, would you please stir up my conscience again to pursue holiness? Stir up my love for you again to pursue you through your word, through prayer. Help me pursue righteousness and help me obey your commands. I want to live as a true member of the kingdom of God. Can I encourage you to just pray a similar prayer? If you're like me and you're challenged by this, if you feel like you've begun to lose your saltiness or the aroma of Christ, ask God to restore it. Ask, him, ask God to give you fresh passion for Him, fresh desire for Him, fresh love for Him. Ask Him to help you live faithfully as the salt of the earth. He's faithful. 
He'll do it. He loves to answer prayers like that. We're called to be the salt of the earth, but that's not all we're called to be. Jesus then changes the illustration and says we're called to be the light of the world. Christians are to be the light of the world. That's the second point. Look down at verses 14 to 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus changes the illustration from salt to light. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But we were in the book of John for however long, two years or something like that. And what did Jesus say in the book of John about himself? He said, I am the light of the world. And so there's this sense where Jesus is saying, just as I am the light of the world, so you are to be many lights of the world. Just as I shine forth into the darkness, pointing people to the living God, you're to be like me, shining forth into the darkness, pointing people to the true God by the way you speak, by the way you live, by the way you love, by the way you serve. And to help us understand more of what it means to be the light of the world, Jesus then uses two light-related illustrations. First, he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I think the image he has in mind there is not just a city set on a hill, although obviously that's the first part, but I think the image he has in mind is a city on a hill at night. And you can imagine seeing a city set on a hill at night and it just blazing with brightness. All the lights are on. People have lights lit in their house. And there's absolutely no way you can miss it. Not only is it elevated, but it's bright. Have you ever been flying at night? And whether you're flying over water or just over empty land, it's completely dark below you. And then all of a sudden, you fly over a city. And what happens? Boom, lights everywhere. It goes from darkness to light very quickly. There's buildings everywhere. They're blazing with light, and there's no way you can miss it. You don't think, ah, maybe that's a little farm or something like that. No, it's an unmistakable sight of a city blazing bright at night. If you've ever been to Times Square at night, don't necessarily recommend the experience, but if you've ever been to Times Square at night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is bright There's no way you can miss it. It's unmistakable. And in the same way, Jesus is calling us to blaze forth into the darkness of the world. To live in such a distinctly Christ-like manner that there's no missing it. To blaze forth with righteousness and purity and holiness and mercy and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And when we do this, When we do this, the Holy Spirit uses our actions to convict people of sin and of righteousness. Did you notice how Jesus, when he's talking about a city, he uses the the illustration of a city, which is a, a together illustration. A city is made up of many lights. A bright city is made up of many lights. And so can I encourage you, if you feel like your light is growing dim... A great step is to come together with God's people 
to join together with God's people and let their light stir you afresh to pursue God. Come together with God's people and be stirred afresh. And can I be honest, as I read this, these verses and I talk about this, I'm not preaching a sermon at you, I'm preaching it at me. This is convicting to me. The call to holiness in this passage, it's so strong. And most of the time, I don't think about holiness in terms of the watching world. I don't think about holiness in terms of what the world sees. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to how my actions affect what the world sees. But Jesus is saying that one of the primary ways we should think about our personal holiness is what will the world say about you and what will the world see in you? And so the question is, are we like a city on a hill blazing forth into the darkness? When people see us, do they say, I may not get it, but it's unmissable. It's unmistakable. There's something different about them. I see light shining out of them. I don't, they might not know exactly what the light is, but they can't miss it because the light of God shines out of us. Is that what people see in us? Is that what people see in me? And then Jesus, he slightly changes the illustration. He moves, moves from big to little, from cities to lamps and houses. When people would light a lamp in Jesus' day... Frankly, when we light a lamp now, it's the same. We don't put it under a basket, right? That's stupid. It defeats the point. It's useless. When we light a lamp, the goal is to fill the room with light, to shine light into every corner, to highlight those Legos that have been left on the floor so that you don't step on them, which is the second most painful experience in history behind childbirth. It's true. You know it's true if you've done it. When you put a light under a basket, what's the point? You might as well not be burning a light at all. A light under a basket is a useless light. In the same way, Jesus is saying we must not hide our light in any way. In any way from the watching world. We must not hide our light. We have, think about this with me, we have the light of Christ himself in us. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, dwells in us. And our call is to unleash that light to the watching world. To shine light on those who walk in darkness and to point them to the light of the world. Think about your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers. So many of them do not know Jesus Christ and they walk in darkness. They don't know the freedom of that Jesus provides. They don't know that there's a better way than walking in the darkness they're walking in. We can't hide our light from them. We must not hide our light from them. Now, what are some of the common ways that we hide our light from the world? I don't think this is complicated. I think it's pretty obvious. And the first and most obvious way we hide our light from the world is when we grow dull in our pursuit of God. When we grow dull, we are, in a sense, putting a basket over ourselves. Notice Jesus says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
we're to pursue good works in front of the watching world. Have you ever thought of that? Not so that we get praise from them. We know that's wrong. But we're to pursue, actively pursue good works in front of the watching world so that they will see that there's a living God who motivates us to do that. To shine light into the darkness and to spur people to give glory to God. To show that there's a real God and to show that this real God calls us to live in specific, God-honoring ways. To show people that when we obey, the living God flourishing happens. To show people there's a better way. You don't have to walk in darkness. Let me ask you this question. What good works is God calling you to pursue? If one of the main ways we shine our light in front of the world is by pursuing good works, what good works is God calling you to pursue? You shouldn't have to think long and hard about it. I'm sure there's things that are obviously jumping right out at you. When you pursue those good works, that's one way of saying, I'm a follower of Christ and I want to shine my light into the world. On the flip side, when we don't pursue holiness, when we don't pursue good works, when we're lax in our pursuit of God, what happens? Our light grows dimmer. People will not be drawn to God. They won't see light shining into darkness. They won't have the light of Christ shining into their lives. And then there's a second way we hide our light. And that's when we're not around unbelievers at all. If we're not around unbelievers, if we're not spending time with them on a regular basis, it doesn't matter how brightly we're shining, they're not going to see it. And this one is particularly convicting to me because I'm self-employed and I spend most of my time alone and I don't have a lot of unbelievers in my life right now. And that needs to change because this passage clearly tells me I'm to shine my light into the world and it's not going to happen if I'm not around unbelievers. Do you spend time around unbelievers? The simple reality is this. Unless we're regularly reaching out to those who don't know Christ, there's no way we can let our light shine forth. It just can't happen. There's no way we can point people to the living God who can bring light into their lives. There's no way to help people see the darkness they're living in and the light that Jesus promises. Listen to how Romans 10, 14 puts it. This is Paul writing. He says, How then will they, unbelievers, how then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? Let me read that again. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In order for someone to believe in Christ and walk in his light, they've got to hear about him. They've got to hear about Jesus. They need to have someone shine the light of Jesus into their lives. We're a city on a hill. We're a lamp in a room. And we're called to shine forth. Now, how should we respond to this? I think there are two responses. First, for those of you, I know there are many of you here who are already doing this. You are already actively pursuing good works. You are 
letting your light shine forth. You are engaging with unbelievers. You are serving God in all the ways that he calls you to. Yes, you fail from time to time, but you're actively pursuing God. And to that, God would say, keep going. Keep doing it. Keep letting your light shine before the world. To the rest of us, like me, this passage can be a reminder of the ways that I've failed to obey God. Because here's the thing, many times I'm not salt and I'm not light. I'm selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, not thinking about how I can be salt and light in the world, just thinking about big, fat old me. And this passage reminds me of two things. First, I'm called to repent. I'm called to repent of my sin and my neglect of my failure to shine forth in the darkness. I need to ask God to forgive me for not being the aroma of Christ in the world. Repentance is the appropriate response. But it needs to be a certain kind of repentance. It needs to be gospel-centered, gospel-driven repentance. In other words, a repentance that is rooted in the forgiveness we already have in Christ. We have a Savior. We repent knowing that we have a Savior who paid for not just some of our transgressions, but all of them. Aren't you grateful for that Savior? Aren't you grateful that Jesus truly did pay it all, including our failure to be salt and light? He was the one who was perfectly the salt of the earth on our behalf. He was the one who was the perfect light of the world, and he did it on our behalf. And so we don't have to get stuck in condemnation, in self-loathing. We can repent of our sins and move forward in holiness. Isn't that good news? We can know that God will give us fresh power to be salt and light. We can know that because Christ himself dwells within us, he's going to empower us to be lights of the world. And I can't think of a better way to do this sort of gospel-centered repentance than by taking the Lord's Supper together. Because when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're saying this. We're saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You are my Savior. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, can I just encourage you, if you need to to repent, do that. Let's repent together of, of just the ways that we've failed. And let's trust in Christ to forgive us. So let me pray. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.